<laughs> Fantastic. Oh my goodness. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> After this semi-long hiatus, I don't know. Let's see. It's probably been like about a month and a half since we last released an episode. Um, we needed a break, recharge, re- reevaluate, so we can bring you a, a bigger and better season two. That's right. <laughs> you may have noticed that the song is different. We we haven't actually changed the song yet. So, but it, we're, we're saying <laughs> we we know the future that we're going to change it. So it was it's a different thing now. It wasn't that exciting to listen to? Oh, it was so exciting. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we finished, uh, we finished season one, uh, I think just a little earlier than we originally planned to, but just based on like scheduling, we were like, you know what, let's just go ahead and do f- the Fast and the Furious. And so, yeah, so summer plans got in the way, uh, with things starting to open back up, um, and vacations were to be had. So we, we already knew what our end goal was, but brought it up a little bit and it's our most popular episode yeah, by, uh, by listeners or listen count it is so. everyone's uh, really loving uh, the fast and the furious finale uh episode which is which is very exciting uh, it's was... one of my favorite episodes oh yeah definitely me too uh i had a great time doing that you know something i kind of noticed um some of the more popular episodes are they're all the ones where i really detailed all of the conversation and put like timestamps for like everything in them mm-hmm. so I, d- I did that for the kill bill one i did that for this one um and then mm-hmm. the thing, maybe one other one, but so maybe that had a little something to do with it as well. Uh, yeah, you were yeah. most excited about about those episodes, even when you were doing all the nitty gritty stuff. Yeah, you, you enjoyed doing like it. Like the the random, uh, like what if, what if Arnold Schwarzenegger was in this movie? I feel like we should just make that a reoccurring segment. <laughs> Some of the movies we do, it's like, <laughs> what would happen if he was in this movie? Um, that was that was a fun little caveat there, but. Uh, Anyway, yeah, so... Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back, or welcome new listeners. Shout out to our, like, one South African listener that uh, <laughs> popped up, like, mid-season. We, we make this for you. Yeah, it's all for you. Also, our show seems to be kind of big in Germany, so shout out to Deutschland, man. Shout out. To, we, got, we have, like, pretty consistent listeners over there. Um, second to, you know, uh, America, obviously, but that was cool to That's see. That's pretty cool. I wish... Uh, learning second languages was more emphasized here in America because for those of you overseas who don't know, we usually have two language credits that we have to take like freshman and sophomore year and, uh, or like ninth and 10th grade, whatever the equivalent is, uh, when you're around 13 and 14 and that's pretty much it that's required. And most people forget their language skills. So shout out to those that are bilingual and, and more. <laughs> yeah. All, all across the appreciating. world. Yeah. We're a global podcast. We love everybody. We have traveled pretty far with uh, the albums and the movies where they're set and then where they're made and everything. That's true. That's true. It's been a journey. It's been a fun journey. And speaking of journeys, for the season opener, as you already know from the title of this, we are covering The Matrix. Quite a journey. A, tri- mm-hmm. a trilogy that was made, started back in 1999, uh, The Journey of Neo. And uh, we thought of the, a fitting, uh, not only album, but band to match some of the uh, ethos of some of the characters and the themes of the film, The Matrix, uh, mm-hmm. was none other than Rage Against the Machine and their second album, Evil Empire, uh, which we're really excited to talk about um, 
And mm-hmm. we always knew, we'd, we'd spoken, I think even before we started the podcast, that we were, it was inevitably we were going to do a Rage album. And uh, we thought, yes. season opener. And, you know, we, we sort of brainstormed. We brainstormed other movies. Uh, we, we, we wanted the first episode to be like a movie that was like a big movie that like mm-hmm. people at least heard of before if they hadn't seen it. Um, you know, we shopped around a few, but yeah, in the end, it was mm-hmm. The Matrix. So yes. we're really excited to talk about it. So before we even get into it, Christian, I know we usually save questions for the end, but I've got one for you for you to stew so, over. Something for me to we, chew on. Yeah. I don't I don't want you to respond yet. All right, I will say nothing. There'll be dead silence so, after you ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> um so Rage Against the Machines, obviously a very heavily politically focused band. Yeah. Uh they deal with real real issues that are both kind of broad and also very specific to the band members, um, you know, lives and, mm-hmm. and, and regions that they're familiar with. Uh, what is your opinion on the matrix in its political overtones? Do you think there is a, a, a message of, uh, that, that is on par with, um, with rage against the machine because there is this, you know, the overarching theme of of power and and control with the machines controlling the humans, and they have to they have to literally rage against the machines. But do you think the <laughs> Matrix is more just, you know, for fun? That's just the the window dressing, or it's just cool and stylized, or do you think there's actual real political messaging? Oh uh, yeah, in okay. that movie. So yeah. think about All that. All right, I will chew on that. Uh, for the next hour, <laughs> or however long. <laughs> uh, so, Alec, uh, I guess I have a question for you that's less deep. What is the Matrix? <laughs> what is the Matrix? Not what is the Matrix in the movie sense, but what is the Matrix the movie? Just what is it? Yeah, what is this movie, The Matrix, about? What is what? Who's in it? What 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 is this even? The Matrix. I took Matrix algebra oh, this, in college, but uh, does, is that what this movie oh, is this, about? This is isn't. This isn't a question. Question. This is a you know a lead in. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Is this, is this is this movie <laughs> yeah, about like I math? Totally, is this, I totally <laughs> totally misinterpreted your question. <laughs> what is the Matrix? The Matrix came out in 1999, and it's about uh, an everyman played by Keanu Reeves. Who is a computer Keanu Reeves. hacker? You mean that guy from Speed? Yeah, Jack. <laughs> That's right, folks. We're uh, leading off the season with another Keanu with, Reeves with more, movie. Yes, <laughs> we like Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Where he he's looking for what is there's got to be more to life than just this, and inevitably it, it leads him to be woken up, uh, and he finds out he's been living in a simulation that is controlled by machines. And he has been prophesized by other people who are quote unquote awake uh, that he is the one that will bring basically balance to the force, that he will defeat the evil machine uprising and humanity can can prosper outside of the simulation the machines created for them. So that's yeah. the, the basic gist of it. Yeah. You know, the, the, it's 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 really funny. Uh, I, I, I don't know how this movie was like advertised, you know, back in like 1999. But the premise, mm-hmm. it sounds like some like high person's like conspiracy theory, you know? Where she's like, Oh yeah. Yeah, man. It's like we're all like robots or we're all like under control of some grand scheme, man. And like, well, if you gotta mm-hmm. like, you know. <laughs> and and not only that, 
but like even the way that the movie progresses and like the first few scenes of the movie, like the first maybe like four, five scenes of the movie where you're introduced to, to Thomas Anderson, Neo, uh, uh, how he is essentially kind of told about the matrix through other characters, through Trinity, mm-hmm. through Morpheus, and the interactions he just has with the first few like conversations he has with each of them, all come off as like so like sketchy and just like these people are insane, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He and before he even and even after he he wakes up outside of the Matrix, like every time he has to be coaxed back into like sticking to the plan, like he bails or almost bails like every interaction he has with them. Yeah. For like the first half of the movie. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's quite the, you know, you said at the beginning, it's quite, it's quite the journey that Neo goes on. I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just of course knowing how like the rest of the films go, but even in this first movie, you know, that first conversation that he has with Morpheus on the phone and he's just simply trying to get him to like, you know, evade the police and go onto like a scaffold to get to the roof. Um, mm-hmm. and he just has to walk, a, well, just, he has to walk across a ledge that's, you know, 30 stories up in the middle of downtown Matrix land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's like, just like freaking out. Like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And, you know, th- then, uh, just ends up going back inside. But, you know, to go from that, mm-hmm. just like completely unsure of himself and still relying and believing in this system, um, to, you know, ultimately getting to a point where he's just like, his mind is free, so to speak. But mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of the the sort of uh, two-sided nature of, of everything that's like said and done in the first part of this movie where it's just like, oh, mm-hmm. I said, all, he just has to walk onto this like scaffold that's like 30 feet up, you know, um, which sounds crazy uh, to do in the real world. But, you know, he doesn't know that it's not real. And so it's right. it's insane. So all these things are asking him to do to them. It seems like, oh, I'm not really asking you to do that yeah, much. <laughs> but he's like, you guys are crazy. I'm not going to go out of the scaffold thing. Yeah. Um, that's what, so that, that leads into why I think the matrix works is, uh, so I didn't watch the, the sequels cause I wanted to keep the, I, I've seen them before, but I didn't watch them in prep for, for this episode. Right. But I think the matrix works because they could have done one of two things and that's either commit to, uh, Neo's journey to believing he is the one, or they could have shown more of the the overarching uh, conflict between humans versus machines. Like they, they mentioned Zion, which is the last city of humans. And that comes into play in the sequels. Um, but it never, it never strays from its main goal yeah. of, of, of Neo. It focuses on him and it, it feels like that when people say they like world building, um, I think this movie nails that like it, it builds the world and it sets up pieces that will come into play later but it does not spend any time on those things because it would distract from the the journey. Like, yeah, I think the pacing is is so good. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, you know, can't speak for the sequels, but like every scene has like a very distinct purpose. Oh yeah, and it's it makes it overall just an incredibly enjoyable film. Yeah, um, you know, I'd agree uh, as far as like world building goes. Um, there's so many things that are like spoken about. Within this movie, uh, that the audience is then like allowed to sort of like fill their use their imagination to like fill in gaps of things. 
kind of like some of the things that Morpheus talks about is like there was a there was a war at the end of the twenty first or at the beginning of the twenty first century um, between machines and humans. Uh, there's a city called Zion that's near the Earth's core where it's still warm. Um, uh, there's a there there's a mystery as to what year it even is that they are in the real world. You don't they don't have these mm-hmm. they don't tell you. Uh, the answers to these questions, they don't show you these things, but it creates the sort of like background of sort of information that like makes what they do tell you uh, more concrete, I would say. Yeah, it's, we've talked about it before, but there's a, there's a line that it's not a hard line. It's more of like a feeling where they will, some movies will over ask questions that will over reveal themselves, but not reveal enough. To yeah. where you're just kind of muddled and confusing. But like you just said, like all those little bits of information, they served a purpose in keeping the audience and Neo going along while simultaneously open-ended enough to where you can find out more about those things, but not knowing the answer to those things. Like the year, 2199. You don't need to know what the exact year is. Yeah. But the way the information's given to us it fits. Yeah. It, 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 it's not overbearing. It's not too much. It's just enough. Yeah. You know, the, the way you said it that way, it actually uh, started to remind me of um, when we did Kill Bill in the first season about how, um, mm-hmm. the, sort of how that story is told near the beginning of that film uh, is, it, it's made clear that um, they, they kind of tell you what is going to happen. But then the thing that's more interesting is like how it happens, I guess, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, from like that, for second scene of the movie that like, you know, Beatrix, Beatrix kiddo, um, you know, ultimately defeats Orin Ishii and you find that out in the right. first season, but then the rest of the whole movie is about her, like going to try to find Orin Ishii. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in this movie, I think it's, it's a similar thing when it comes to those little details of, of that, uh, world building. Um, they keep you, they keep the audience in like this sort of like mystery dome, the same, like, like, like you were saying, like following Neo, the audience is in the same mindset as Neo pretty much. You don't really know mm-hmm. what the matrix is as you're watching like the, basically the first act of the movie. Um, yeah. and everything everyone's saying sounds like kind of insane, but then mm-hmm. they like, then the movie just like, I, w- I would say it, it's funny. I never thought of it this way, I guess, cause I've seen it so many times, but it makes like a, I would say a left turn to where it's like, no, all the stuff they were saying is, is real. And, uh, here's how mm-hmm. it goes. And here's the story of kind of these brief little stories of all these people and where they are and what, what's has or not happened in, in Neo's life. And mm-hmm. it's just like, his mind is blown at the same time. The audience mind is blown basically. Yeah. Uh, back to that pacing. Yeah. Like when you said the first act, like your mind's being blown and, I just have so much praise for it. They, they spend so much time telling you what the matrix is like scene by scene. Like you go like 45 minutes or something like into the movie where it's all just like explaining. And normally that's so boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you just want to get to like the action or you want to get to like, okay, you know, the backstory do something with it but the movie takes so much time like the uh the 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 scene where neo's out of the matrix but then he plugs in for the first time and it's Mm -hmm. morpheus giving the history of uh, how humans are grown and the brief history of the machines and it's that white room and it's so exciting to watch yeah but you're still just getting like dialogue it's just pure dialogue and it's monologuing by uh morpheus in that scene but 
the way it's shot, everything, the way it's shot, it's just so, like, intriguing. Yeah, if you want to talk about cinematography, something that I actually learned by chance um, mm-hmm. a couple of days ago is I believe the, the cinematographer of this movie, he's also, uh, he was hired to be the cinematographer for um, that new Marvel movie that's supposed to come out soon, uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Oh, cool. Which is a martial you know what, arts film. You know what else he shot? What? Team America, World Police. Oh, wow. Well, you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, mo- that movie you really don't like? Yeah. <laughs> That we'll never but do, and he, if we do do it, I'm just going to talk shit the whole time. He specifically <laughs> wanted to do it because he just did all the Matrix movies back to back to back, and he's like, I want to do something totally different. Totally different. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, seriously, the cinematography yeah. in this movie is iconic. It's like, it, it oh, changed yeah. the game for like action films and science fiction films. Um, some people argue that the Matrix is you know, like the best sci- one of the best science fiction movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, <laughs> I just remembered uh, part of the thing that spurred our conversation for picking The Matrix uh, was uh, we were talking about science fiction movies. <laughs> and then we had a big old discussion of is Star Wars sci-fi or fantasy? That's right. And, and uh, I think it's fantasy. Alec cheated and like looked up, what did George Lucas have to say about this? And, he's and like, guess what George Lucas had to say? <laughs> it's fantasy. It's fantasy, not sci-fi. I think it's a bit of both. Some people right. call it like you, space opera. There's another thing I've heard Christian, it called before. live your truth. I, I will live my truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, iconic shot. Of course, you know, oh, most, yeah. pe- most people think of The Matrix and you think of that scene in the movie where like Neo like basically like leans backwards and there's like bullets flying towards yeah, him. He's like dodging time. the bullet time yeah. scene, the famous bullet time scene. And oh my gosh, I watched a little uh, a video on like how they film that and i was like wow this is oh, amazing yeah. they had like yeah. 120 like individual cameras or something like that and and uh they had to like create the the scene basically they did they storyboarded it like you would but except for this they they did it like digitally they like a digital storyboard mm-hmm. and then they had to uh film it based off of they, that was their planning process was the storyboarding and then they filmed it based on that and they had to, like splice different images together and mm-hmm. um and yeah it just it's just created um it created a uh, a visual style that has just been copied <laughs> uh, in both yeah, like other yeah. serious films and like in comedies and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but you know, in nineteen ninety nine, it was and it wasn't afraid to do like like um, different styles outside of what it was doing like in the Matrix, like the the kung fu scene, uh, the 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 infamous fight, or I guess just famous the famous fight between. Yeah. Morpheus and Neo yeah. when they they're both doing kung fu at each other. Yeah, and isn't that such a and cool scene? It's like scene? those those establishing shots, those like wide oh, shots yeah. of both of them like side by side like a video game. Yeah. Like, isn't that such so a great scene cool. because I I really like that scene because one it's the first time you see, you know, a fight scene in the movie basically. Uh, apart mm-hmm. from uh, maybe well, I remember who we were talking last. Like, if it lasts more than, if it lasts less than ten seconds, instead of fight or of slaughter or whatever, because like Trinity beats up all those cops in like the first scene of the movie. But, yeah. um, but uh, you know, the, you're, they go into the the construct for the sparring program thing, and then they start fighting, and then they cut out of the out of the program back onto the ship, the Nebuchadnezzar, 
and Mouse is like, Morpheus is fighting Neo. And everyone's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And they all rush to yeah, the yeah. little monitor so they can watch it because they're excited yeah. to see this too, basically. You know, it, that's all, again, ties back into that journey. Like, it's, they, the movie is like, moving with the audience the audience is moving with like the characters as far as like mm-hmm. this is really cool this is really interesting like as as mm-hmm. as it's happening your mind's blown as their minds are blown um and so, it feels kind of, of communal i think speaking of that scene um so it's totally different like the there's so many genres in this one movie oh yeah oh my like, goodness yeah like sci-fi action adventure there's even like body horror anime with, like and yeah, anime. Yeah, it's pretty much its own genre. Yeah, like the this the the story trope of the one, um, dude. That like the acupuncture stuff and like even jacking in the first time they put Ooh. that big ass needle mm-hmm. up in someone. Yeah. Um, and you know, go on a little tangent. The sound design in this movie mm-hmm. so good. Like that plugging, jacking in, and jacking out. Yeah. Um, even when the machines are like grabbing those eggs, like there's a lot of yeah. like, like crunchy. Cr- yeah. Like, like nails on. I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, someone I, with better words could probably describe. Yeah, it. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's very like very sharp sounded. Very like the, the audio, the audio mixing for those. The, basically, they're like eggs. It's like human eggs, yeah. basically, and you just see this little claw. It's like mechanical claw, just like come down and just like grab this like infant sack that's attached to this like power plant and just like sucks it out and. And it sounds like a cracking egg that like didn't crack. Oh, it's. It's yeah. so good. Like, and I started paying attention to all the other sounds in the movie, and I'm like, this is so, so well put together. Do you remember I texted you a couple of days ago, because uh, I was when I was watching it, and I was like, oh, pay attention to the editing, the editing for yeah. these fight scenes, because I was thinking yeah. about one of the conversations we had uh, about um, uh, what was it when we did the Edgar Wright movie, um, The World's End, mm-hmm. and how he was a a fan of Jackie Chan and we talked about Jackie Chan's editing style. Um, and so I was like paying attention to that in this movie about how they would do like wide shots for um, some of the fight scenes that would like go on. You'd see the contact every time with everything instead of like a lot of jump cuts, maybe like, maybe like the born identity or something like that. It was all just like one full shots, which shows that the actors, one had to learn some of the fight choreography, but also you get that sort of impact as far as each blow goes that Jackie Chan was right, talking right. about, which he said is not, uh, is, is, is more common in, in Chinese films and less common in American made, uh, mm-hmm. uh, films, not just, uh, martial arts films, but just fighting scenes in general. Mm-hmm. And so that was something cool to see, uh, in, in this movie, uh, that they kind of took that maybe like the Hong yeah. Kong, the Hong Kong style of uh, editing, um, mm-hmm. uh, fight scenes. Um, which is, I guess, yet another genre that's that's worked its way into this uh, film. So here, here's my hot take uh, about The Matrix in relation to Kill Bill. Uh-huh. I think The Matrix is a better Kill Bill. The Matrix is a better Kill Bill. In what so, aspect? Not in terms of, of story, because they're very different stories, but in the ways that they wanted to take a bunch of genres... And like oh, pay homage to them with I see. you know genre hopping and specifically having kind of like martial arts from um, Asian centric countries and, and and bleeding them all together. Yeah, it and and, and following one person's journey. Um, I 
it's probably not like a fair comparison to well, make, I, but about halfway through the Matrix, I'm like, this is what I wanted out of Kill Bill, but just executed better. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying. It's like it's all of these influences are blended together seamlessly, or maybe more yeah. seamlessly than in Kill Bill, I which think, is which is very dis- they're all very distinct. Even like specifically, just the movie cuts to a whole like five minute right, anime right. sequence, you know. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I. I definitely get what you're saying. All those influences are kind of blended. But I guess that maybe that speaks to like Quentin Tarantino's uh, exploitation. Yeah. And, uh, and again, that might not thing. even be like a a diss because Tarantino is like wanting you to notice all these distinct changes. Whereas in the Matrix, they're very well blended together. So if it's intentional, then you can't really knock it. But it for me personally, watching it. I was like, this is what I wish Kill Bill was a little bit more of. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's interesting. Uh, I know that uh, Quentin Tarantino, he's um, he's a big fan of this movie. And uh, yeah. he thinks it's like one of the best, if not the best, science fiction movie ever made. Um, and like had high praise for it. And he went to go see it like a bunch of times and all that sort of stuff. And he's talked about it several times. Because this movie was, I mean, this movie came out four years before um, Kill Bill. It came out like while he was yeah. writing, writing Kill Bill. Um, right. But yeah, um, you know, uh, yeah, the blending of all these genres, like very, because if you were to define, if you were to like pick a genre uh, to describe this movie, I mean, that's uh, like, again, that's how we kind of arrived at the uh, choosing this mm-hmm. movie was we were like, oh, sci-fi. But, uh, you know, I guess Wikipedia here says it's a science fiction action film is how they define it. Which is, yeah, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say that's fair. Yeah, but here at uh, Ha 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 Fantastic, we don't put things in boxes of genres, <laughs> especially music, which we'll get to that later uh, <laughs> when talking about Rage Against <laughs> the Machine. Um, but yeah, you know, okay, so I saw this movie when I was a, like not too long after it came out. I didn't see it in theaters, but mm-hmm. um, I did see it before the, the sequel came out, which was in 2003. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was a kid, Similar to how I was speaking about, you know, I was a fan of those old Bruce Lee movies, and I would kind of just like fast forward to all the fight scenes and stuff. That was kind of the same thing with this movie, because I mm-hmm. didn't know what the hell they were like talk- talking about, really, because I was yeah, like yeah. eight, <laughs> and so I didn't understand the whole, you know, uh, all the themes they were talking about when it came to like belief and like the parallels to like religion and uh, yeah. and things like that. Um, but you know, as I got older, um, I again, like some of the movies we talked about last season where I'd seen them young, but then grew up, I grew to appreciate them for much different reasons, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I got older, which, which I think kind of um, maybe l- leads into the question you kind of asked me at the beginning, mm-hmm. where yeah. you were like, is this um, a movie that's at face value, just like, you know, this, this is some cool stuff and it's not really trying to say anything or, or, or is mm-hmm. this, are there a political... Uh, or social uh, themes that are being uh, expressed through the telling of this story. Yeah. Um, and as a child, you know, I'm mm-hmm. more on the on the train of just like, yeah, I want to see Morpheus fight Neo and dodge bullets and you know stop bullets with his hand or whatever. Oh but, yeah. Um, you know, because it's awesome. Because it's awesome to see. But um, that is something like that, which amazing. Again, you know, all of that in this movie is like groundbreaking and incredible and stands up to mm-hmm. this day. But the more intriguing part to me for uh, you know this film is, is are the characters are that journey you go on with Neo it, those parallels to uh, like maybe Christianity with being the one and 
uh, mm-hmm. the the oracle having these prophecies and and really just diving into what it means to like believe something or to to, to think about like what is real and what is not real. Um, I think for sure this movie has a lot to say about um, all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. But namely, I guess if I were to just pick one, uh, the, the belief, I think, is is the main thing. The first sort of things that uh, mm-hmm. is discussed in this film uh, is Morpheus asks Neo a question, a simple question. He says, do you believe in fate? And Neo says, no. And he says, why not? And he said, because he doesn't like the idea that someone else is in control of his life. And mm-hmm. then Morphe says, I know exactly what you mean. Now, um, the reason why that is relevant to the context of the story is because um, Neo at that time was a part of this, uh, essentially, this like mind control system. He wasn't actually like living a real life. And so fate mm-hmm. to him, fate to Neo at that time, was sort of like uh, constrained within this like false reality where he did not really have um, uh, control over his life uh, the way he Mm -hmm. may have thought he did. And Morpheus essentially is in a position to add choice to Neo's life, which Neo has never had before. He's never had, he's never really been able to make choices um, until he meets Morpheus basically. And it's, it's drawn out very clearly um, I think very literally in this film where he's given essentially somewhat of an ultimatum where he's like, he gives a choice of taking a red pill or a blue pill where the mm-hmm. blue pill will, will essentially continue the story that's already been going on where he'll just remain in the matrix and uh, will not learn any more about where he came from or what's going on or anything like that. Or he can take mm-hmm. this red pill which will essentially, uh, in short, open his mind up and free him from uh, from what's been constraining this whole time, and actually break away to where he can actually experience that uh, what he believes is you know a life that's not predetermined. Um, and uh, <laughs> when it comes to that, you know, I think um, you know the I think the deep part there is really just presenting someone with choice as you make choices. And there's lots of uh, like psychotherapists have like written stuff about this over the years, but like Mm -hmm. we're ultimately um, what um, allows people to progress through anything they're going through is choice basically. Whereas you'll remain Mm -hmm. at the same state you always are until you make a choice down a fork in the road basically. And that's what Neo is presented with. Um, And he, you know, of course ultimately chooses to take the red pill and, and and uh, things go on from there, but uh, I think uh, that's a very simple example of, uh, I guess, philosophy, really, um, when it comes to how your life can pan out. He got the opportunity to make like the first choice, basically, uh, of of his life, which I thought was really interesting. So. Do you think it's political? <laughs> it sounds like you think it's more, more religious and even spiritual, like belief in oneself. I, I would say falls under the umbrella of of. Oh well, self, I mean, I mean, you know, you know for sure it's political. I mean, just you know, the the agents themselves. It's the whole uh, concept behind the, the the story of what's happening. Like ultimately, uh, you know, 
humans are under control by this oppressive system uh, mm. and essentially they're being exploited for who they are for the gain of someone else. And if that's not political, <laughs> then I don't know what is. And the gain yeah. here is that they're really using human beings as um, a power source so that they can survive right. themselves. And, uh, and to do so, to, to accomplish that means, they strip away uh, an entire race, uh, it's an, an entire, entire planet from choice, from, uh, from enjoyment, from uh, any in possible liberty that they could ever have and reduce yeah. them to just like how much energy their body can produce. Um, so here's, here's my question to you, like a follow-up question. So watching this time, the themes of like oppression and slavery were, were much more like in my face, I guess, uh, compared to in the past. Because I think in the past, I, I just saw the machines as just, you know, machines. Like I saw it as like a future kind of story and not just like a allegory for like what's been happening through throughout humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's... uh. You know, it's a well-known fact that originally they wanted Will Smith as yeah. Neo, and he turned it down, and they went with Keanu Reeves. The fool. <laughs> it, it makes me think now, I mean, Will Smith being Neo would have been a different movie, obviously. Yeah. But I'm wondering if the themes of, of like, it, it, I, I wonder if I would have made the connection sooner, and as yeah. a younger individual, if, if Neo I was saw, African-American... It, Instead yeah, two, of a white guy. two black men in the in the leading roles, I would have gotten that connection and saw that a bit more. Because um, with it's just Neo, I just, you know, I'm a white man myself. So I just saw myself in that. I didn't see the, the you know, the, the, the history pages that were, that yeah. were put on screen. So, so what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good point you just made. So I yeah I did know about you know Will Smith turning it down. There's actually kind of a funny video you can look up on Will Smith's YouTube channel of him talking about mm. his meeting with the Wachowskis and why he turned it down. But um, but yeah, that's that's very that's very interesting. I, I I was thinking about a lot of the a lot of the um, um I, I guess they ended up riding the line of like how. Uh, overt or covert should we be when addressing things? Like, do we want to just like yeah. straight up tell people this is what this movie is about, or do we want to like you know cleverly layer it in there and present an argument without like throwing it like pushing it down and, your throat? And, and I think they did the latter for the betterment of the movie because like you can see I guess what you want in the movie and still enjoy. It. What what spurred this was near the end when Morpheus is being interrogated. Yeah, and um. He literally breaks out of the the handcuff chains behind him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, symbolism there. And it just like I I recalled the um the trailer for Django Unchained where they had that animation of the literally the two hands yeah breaking apart in the oh, chains yeah. and I was like oh my god how have I never <laughs> like made this connection before yeah um, um literally a black man ripping out of his change and chains and not being a slave anymore. I was like, holy shit, this is like, that was the most overt thing that I saw. But again, like I went, I've seen this movie like 10 times throughout my life and I've never made that explicit connection. So, you know, do you think they could have, I mean, I guess they could have been more overt about it, but I think it would have led to a 
lesser movie. So here's what I think about all of that. I think the Wachowskis are pretty damn progressive <laughs> siblings. Yes. Um, and for like lots of reasons. So one being okay, just the just the nature of like how I think political and this movie is, and just posing questions about you know figures of power and and uh, what belief can do to. Um, I guess, uh, undermine uh, society and things like that. Um, but also, you know, there's a character in this movie whose name is Switch. And mm-hmm. uh, apparently the original idea for this character was that Switch in the real world uh, was female. But when Switch was plugged into the Matrix, mm-hmm. uh, Switch is male. Um, mm-hmm. because the, the, the way that, uh, the matrix essentially works is, uh, they have this thing called residual self image where it's like, you see mm-hmm. your, what, what it's seen in the matrix is how you perceive yourself, not what you may be, uh, to everyone else basically. Um, and, uh, I was like, well, that's, that, this is 1999. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was like, well, that's, that's pretty, yeah. uh, progressive, uh, thinking that's pretty like forward thinking, um, as far as like writing a character goes, that's I thought that was a, mm-hmm. a really clever idea. That and then of course like what you'd mentioned, where they they'd gone to Will Smith first to be the face of this story that's about mm-hmm. you know um, uh, uh, people being oppressed and they're having their rights and freedoms and liberties just like taken away from them or them not even like knowing about it, which has like such a great connection to you know slavery, obviously, where it's like culture is completely yeah. lost, uh, essentially. And and also, you know, the Wachowskis, which if you watch the movie uh, or the first three movies, um, you know, when the credits roll, it's I think it says like uh, directed by the Wachowski brothers or something like that, um, yeah. where the Wachowskis are, are now um, they're transgender. So they both and either they no longer identify. Uh, as men, which will actually, I think they're, are they directing this fourth one? I, that would be cool to see. Uh, La- Lana is. Oh, just the one, okay. Um, Lily is doing more smaller projects, and Lana is the one who did the last couple seasons of Sense8 and um, the the next Matrix movie coming out this year. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it's seemingly in their bones to like, you know, not, they're not just going to shy away from uh, making political statements through art. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think that's, this movie is, is, is both a celebration of film and a fantastic and clever way to speak about mm-hmm. their politics and their, 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 uh, opinions and on, um, belief. And it's, it, it's so interesting. It works so well in this one film. Yeah. Like you, it just, it really seemed like the stars aligned for everything to go as well as it did. Oh yeah. Um, I, 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 um, and also, you know, I guess something we hadn't spoke about was that, you know, again, this movie came out in 1999 and of course Mm -hmm. there was this, um, whole thing and, you know, as the nineties were approaching the end that basically, you know, the world was going to end. Uh, in the year 2000, and it was like the apocalypse was mm-hmm. coming, and and Y2K. this this movie plays into that a little bit, um, to where essentially the world quote unquote ended. I guess at the beginning of the 21st century is what Morpheus says, but essentially mm-hmm. society ended in 1999. And I think Agent Smith even says he's like, we chose this for this sixth uh, iteration of the Matrix because it was like mankind's peak, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was you know followed by it's mankind's destruction. Um, 
And uh, I, th- I think that was a cool, I, what, I mean, I wonder how long they had the idea for making this movie, and then it happened to come out in 1999, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> And it's about all timing. of that. Perfect timing. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was always, and that's kind of something I knew about this movie. That was probably my first like, connection to this movie as a kid. Because I remember mm-hmm. those conversations happening, like the world's gonna end in two thousand, blah, yeah, and then and then hearing about the Matrix and you know that coming out, uh, yeah. So, um, so uh, I have a lot of uh, notes here <laughs> that yeah, uh, yeah. I just want to like kind of read some of these off and get your like take on them. So, sure. so I said uh, one of the things I wrote down was thank goodness modern society was destroyed when payphones still existed. Because, because that's like their only way to get out of the matrix. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they'd be they'd be faxing stuff, <laughs> like <laughs> fax machines are still around. They'd find a way. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I it, it is funny how like it is a 1999 film. Yeah. Like the the nightclub they go to is playing Dragula by rob zombie right which is great and it's kind of still it's it's weird because it's it, they explicitly tell you it's 1999 in the movie mm-hmm. in the matrix yeah. it's 1999 yeah. yeah but the movie is like kind of timeless because that's just like a, a part of the storytelling of the film it's like right your right. reality is 1999 but everything else mm-hmm. is not 1999 we're like somewhere in the future we don't know um, so everything that's within that context makes perfect sense. It's like, yeah, you still and, got and the ruined future makes sense too. It's like what makes it timeless instead of it being like sleek and futuristic in the future, humanity has to like scrape whatever they, they can find to get by. So the fact that all of the, um, computer equipment they use is like dirty and grimy and quote unquote retro, even by the time like 99, like the, the time the movie came out, it still works, and like you said, makes it timeless because it fits in the story. Yeah. Uh, another note I have here is uh, several cows were harmed in the making of this movie. So much leather. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone looks so cool. Everyone is wearing a leather suit in this movie. <laughs> and um, or croc skin. <laughs> and Cipher, Cipher's eating that steak. Oh yeah, he is. It's true. You know. You know, something I did not notice, actually, until this last time I watched this movie was, um, and I noticed it even even though they give you like a kind of like a cue to it right before the scene happens, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, the first scene of the movie, it was, it was two things, really. The first scene of the movie, the first thing you see, the first thing you hear is a conversation between Trinity and Cypher. Yeah. And Trinity says, are you sure this line isn't tapped? And he's like, yeah. She's like, I gotta go. And then it cuts basically to where she's sitting, and she's mm-hmm. there's like a phone in front of her, and she's in this like abandoned room, and the cops are behind her, and, right? I didn't notice that at the end of the movie, that's the same exact room that Neo runs to when he's trying to escape uh, oh. the Matrix. It has this, it, and I didn't notice the cue they give you to. There's a few things I only noticed because I saw on the wall it had that sign. It's like city boarding something something on it, but there's mm-hmm. two, there's two other hints to it like a minute Mm. before that uh smith is chasing neo and he sees the sign the movie opens up actually on the sign of the building outside and he sees the sign right that's how he knew where he was going that's how smith was already in the room before neo Uh, got there because he knew exactly where he was going because that's what happened yeah that's cool and the room says 303 on it as well 
on the door, you see that at the beginning and at the end. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'd never thought about that. Also, I said, there's kind of two things with that. I didn't realize what's happening in that very first scene of the movie is Cypher basically gave Trinity up. That's how they knew oh, where yeah. she was. The first thing he he says is he's surprised that that she's up. He's like, oh, I didn't know you were you were taken over. Yeah. And then she goes, she's like, nah, I just wanted to, to, to watch him or something. And then he smartly moves the conversation away from himself and on to Trinity by saying, you like watching him, don't you? Yeah. And then she has to get defensive. So like she could have found him out. Like mm-hmm. he's Cypher's actually pretty smart. He's a, he's a pretty movie. smart, smart snake. And yeah. I guess a tangent to uh, not tangent, but a little uh, adjacent fun fact is the guy who plays Cipher is um, he's <laughs> in this movie called Bad Boys with Will Smith. Uh, he plays his lieutenant in that movie, mm. which came out like a couple of years before this, which I thought was that'd have been funny to see Will Smith in this movie with him uh, with him together because in that whole mm. movie he just yells at him the whole time. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, another thing, I guess, uh, this isn't too big, but I just, everything is like, has a green tint in the Matrix. Even like the exit signs are green. If you notice mm-hmm. that. Which is intentional. Everything in the Matrix is like green tinted. Everything in the real world has like this like bluish purple tint to it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, kind of already spoke to that. Um, oh yeah, I guess I said, uh, how does time work? My question was, how does time work in the Matrix? Like, is it always mm-hmm. 1999? Like, because Neo says that he has memories of his life. They're, they're driving to see the Oracle, and he sees like a, a restaurant. He's like, oh, I used to eat there. He's like, I've got all these memories from my life that never happened. Um, and I was thinking, I was like, so I guess, you know, he had a file, so it showed that he was like born in a certain year. So was the Matrix like, did it look like the 70s or whatever at a certain point? And they just like showing it progress. But, but then they said they designed it to be 1999. So I was curious... As to like how time actually works there, where if they actually have, if anything actually actually did happen in the Matrix that looked like it was like the seventies, for example, or if they just have memories of like this is what the seventies were like, but that never actually happened in the Matrix. You know what I mean? My, so my two thoughts on that are one is that it doesn't matter, and I'm glad <laughs> the movie doesn't try to explain it. Yeah. Um, but two, since they said they rebooted the Matrix a couple times. That makes me think they'll let humanity play out to about 1999, and then right. we'll just like reset it or, or or something. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it. I, was, I remember I was when I was younger, I was just curious about that, uh, the sort of iterations of the Matrix, because essentially the only reason they need it is just to keep people's minds active so that they don't die, so they right. can continue to get power from. That's like the whole point of it. Um, and so, you know, scrapping, uh, reality, scrapping one matrix for the next is not a big deal to them, basically, mm-hmm. as long as the people, uh, don't die, which Smith hints at that did happen at one point. It's like the first matrix they made. It was supposed to be like a paradise, but people's minds couldn't accept that reality. And so yeah. they all like died. Basically he said entire crops were lost. Basically what he says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I thought that, that was that was kind of interesting. It's just like it's just a program that they just keep like refreshing. Basically, they get like an mm-hmm. update to it. Um, so another note I had here was I said Cipher kind of has a point about Morpheus quote unquote tricking them. I think Morpheus kind of did trick them. To be oh, honest, yeah. he uh, absolutely he, he gave them a very narrow window as to what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, 
all I remember, all I offer is the truth or whatever. It's like, uh, well, you offered yeah, like he, 10% of the truth. He even like, he was so, I mean, it, it's called out in the movie by the Oracle. She says he's blinded by his own truth that he's willing to pull Neo out way after the, uh, you know, I, I imagine it's like you don't pull anyone out after they're like an adult, like 18 years old, I would I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he does that. Then later he's like, oh, yeah, I should have warned you. This could be a painful process. But and then he's like, I can't explain it to you. I have to show you. And then he just explains it. Yeah. To Neo. So like, yes, but I think it fits. Yes. I, I think it fits his character. Yeah, that's uh, the sort of interesting thing um and maybe even controversial thing about this movie and then the subsequent you know films um was the whole the oracle's role in this film Mm -hmm. what she tells two individuals who speak to her and then how that in a way kind of predetermines the choices they will make um Mm -hmm. in this movie maybe within just within the matrix but then you know as movies go on maybe outside of the scope of the matrix um, you know, we only get uh, context is like three different characters. You know, m- m- the Oracle told Mor- told Morpheus that he would find the one. Mm-hmm. The Oracle told Trinity that she would fall in love with the one, and mm-hmm. the Oracle told Neo basically that he was not the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, you know. Morpheus speaks about how he spent his whole life looking for Neo and then Trinity, you know, it's only at the end does she, you know, reveal that, you know, she had like a fondness for Neo this whole time. Yeah. And then with Neo it was kind of like a I guess a trick. So it's the story's like where he's like he she told you exactly what you needed to hear is the is yeah. the idea. Um now, of course, if you're really familiar with this film and its sequels, there's like a ton of controversy about the Oracle's <laughs> character as the movies yeah. go on, as far as like what role she plays within the Matrix, I guess. But just within the context of this movie, uh, you have to take everything at like face value that she is actually there to like help them. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I, I always I thought that was like kind of interesting because ba- essentially, you know, he tricks tricks them in quotations because he believes that it's necessary. Yeah, so you brought up the Oracle. Um, watching this time, I got a little sense of, like, she, is, she represents kind of um, like a witch, almost. Hmm. Like like kind of voodoo type, like the Southern hospitality vibe and that she was, like, a, uh, a stand-in for... Um, I guess I was still on that mindset of, like, slavery and, like, how it... Represents in historical contexts, yeah. And she felt more kind of like a, yeah, like I was thinking like voodoo specifically, like Louisiana voodoo, like an old wise black woman pa- practicing witchcraft and like guiding people, yeah, on their know, journeys. You know, now that you mentioned that, I can't remember the name of this thing, but um, um, Dave Chappelle actually spoke about uh this uh, before his mother referred to him as a specific word i can't remember i'll i'll try to insert it later i guess when mm-hmm. i'm editing but um 
the essentially he says within like certain uh, tribe, the tribe that Dave Chappelle found out his like ancestry came from, uh, there are mm-hmm. certain like storytellers that were within their um, within their tribe. And they had a specific name, and basically their responsibility was to mm-hmm. speak with everyone and and be like the um, the harbinger of information. Basically, they're supposed mm-hmm. to ha- have all of the knowledge, the cultural knowledge of their society. And right. they were people of wisdom that uh, everyone would sort of go to uh, when they were they were like uh, needing guidance. And I think the Oracle may play into that. And again, to your point, I think yeah. that maybe if Will Smith was a lead character, it would that would have been maybe a little more obvious. It, it would have, it would have, yeah. Um, and now, I don't think it's really saying anything. I think it just kind of fits in with the with the theme a, a bit when you look at it in that light. And, and I, it, it's set up in a way you don't have to even see it as that. You can just see it as like, should you trust this woman or should you not? Right. That's true. And also another thing I just thought about was, you know, at that time, in 1999, you know, Will Smith was kind of doing things that no one African-American man had like ever done. Like he was like getting paid like millions and millions of dollars, you know, top of the mm-hmm. bill for like blockbuster movies, you know, Independence Day and Bad Boys and, you know, mm-hmm. all these movies. Um, and... You know, I don't know if there would at the time there would have been another actor that would like could have that would have had that you know screen presence and uh, mm-hmm. you know marketability, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, for that for that time period. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's a good point about the about the Oracle. Now, of course, you know, in the later movies, you know, you like find out the Oracle. Everything is, gets twisted a bit, yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it's all. I plan on watching Reloaded tonight, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Reloaded's actually the first one I saw. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, it was uh, a DVD of it, and my cousin's DVD player had this feature where it would bleep out the swear words. <laughs> so I would see what? characters' mouths move, and, like, they wouldn't say shit. Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> So that actually leads to my next <laughs> my next note. So. Yeah. So I saw this for the first time on television. So they had, it was like the edited version, basically. Right, right, right. There's right. a scene in the movie where Neo uh, hops into a car um, with Trinity and Switch and APOC at night. And it's raining. It's under this tunnel or whatever. This is after Neo had just woken up from what he thought was a dream where the agents had put like a bug like in his body, basically. And so yeah. what they're doing in this car, they're trying to get the bug out. And so they put this machine on Neo's stomach right over his belly button. And then they end up like sucking it out after they like electrocute him and all that sort of stuff. And the thing like sucks out of his belly and into this little like vial thing. And <laughs> in the edited version, so in the, in the real version, he's like, Jesus Christ, that thing's real. But on television, yeah. he says, Jeepers Creepers, that thing's real. <laughs> <laughs> That's your like two thousand two god uh censorship for you. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh I noticed the this time around, like they make it very clear it's an R rated movie, like in that opening scene. Oh with, yeah. With Trinity saying shit and god damn it. And, and like breaking a cop's arm in half and shooting yeah, all of them I up. I think that's and... the first like thing. She grabs his arm and then breaks it. And it's like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> this yeah. is like, it, it's it's allowing the story to be, like I think a PG-13 rating wouldn't hurt the story that much. Yeah, I don't but think But I think so, having yeah. the, the freedom of an R rating, like it allowed it to, to go places. Breathe a yeah. little more, yeah. 
So, you know, I got a question for you, Alec. This is a question that you What you got? This is a question you asked me last season, and I'm going to ask you Uh in regards to this movie. What do you think this movie is saying in regards to female empowerment? Ooh. Hmm. My first, my initial gut reaction is not much. <laughs> um, even Trinity's name, it's like she's the third wheel, you know? What? <laughs> yeah. Um, let me think about it for a second. I'm just going to, I'm just start vamping. Okay, well, well, work through well, this well while you're loud. thinking that, I'll uh, do the old uh, space filler. What would it be like if Arnold Schwarzenegger was in this movie? Come on, I got to get out of the Matrix. Come on, give me the red pill. Come on. <laughs> I got the muscles. <laughs> get me out of here. Come on. Oh, no, got to keep going. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. I, I changed no, my mind. I... Give me the blue pill. Come on. I'm going to stay so in the Matrix. There's, there, there's light touches. I mean, at the very beginning where the cops are like, I think we can handle one little girl. And mm-hmm. then Agent Smith's like, your men are your already men are dead. are already dead. Yeah, and like Trinity, Trinity kicks ass, and she is. Uh, and even Neo was like, you know, "Oh, I just I thought you were were a guy." He says that to her. Yeah, in yeah. The club. Like uh, it and underestimates she's like, she's women. Like, Most guys do. But her prophecy is to fall in love with a man. Mm-hmm. So it's like that fails the Bechtel test. <laughs> you know, I mean, I I get it. It serves. I I don't think this movie is like anti-feminist but at the same time there's nothing like pro-feminist there's nothing celebratory about it um yeah and even in like the sequels with monica bellucci's character it's like all centered around neo which i think it's just inherent with these types of stories like if you have the one then everything is gonna circle around the one Mm -hmm. so it's hard to have like separate little side stories. If you're just in a movie runtime, like if it was a TV show, you definitely would have like individual side stories for characters, but yes. I think they smartly focused in on Neo and it's a better movie for it. But to answer your question, it, and you know, I mean, it, it, it does, you know, on the surface level, don't underestimate women. And that's about it. That's about it. Yeah. I'd say, uh, there's that. Yeah. Her character is like, she's destined to fall in love with Neo. And that's yeah. kind of like her, that's what's subtly kind of happening as you watch the movie. You don't find out that uh, that's, you know, really why she's re- why she's reacting the way she is when certain things are said or done the whole movie until, you know, basically you get to the end. And then there's even, like, the Oracle, who's one of the only other women in the film, who she's kind of like the, like, in the Matrix, she's this, like, grandma figure and, like, literally, like, giving, mm-hmm. you know, cookies to people and, yeah. and is kind of just, like, soldering back and forth and is, you know, yeah. s- sits down in the kitchen and, and that sort of thing. But I don't think they're I, trying to yeah. die. That's just, I don't know what the tr- reason was, was for that specifically, but that whole I, deal makes me think about kind of how everything seems, mm-hmm. like, crazy from, like, if you didn't know this was the Matrix, it's just, like, and then I went to this, like, old lady's house, and she was, like, she said she was, like, the uh, an oracle, and it's, like, this is insane. Yeah, yeah. This is insane. What's going on? Um, uh, the only other really notable woman, woman besides, like, Switch is um, the lady in red, the woman in red. The woman in the red dress, yeah. And I actually really like that part of the movie because it, it really fleshes out the world a bit. Like, it's something not essential to the plot, but, you know, Mouse is talking about, you know, to 
to um, deny your own impulses. To deny your own impulses. And then he's talking about tasty wheat. And he's asking those questions like, is it perpetually 1999? Was yeah. it 1970s at one point? Like, it's yeah. asking those, like, those questions that audience, like, we would talk about after the movie's over. Like, mm-hmm. how does this world actually work? And it's fun to see that, like, in the movie and taken, like, seriously. Yeah. You know, the characters are the other... Uh, the other crewmates are laughing at him, but like it, it all fits in yeah. the context of the story. Yeah. It's good to have those. I think a moment, like I think that's movie needed that sort of scene uh, yeah. where it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like maybe in like star Wars where I think it's the, what, what benefited the old star Wars movies, the original trilogy was a character like Han Solo where he was mm-hmm. there to kind of like when when Obi-Wan Kenobi is talking to Luke about the Force and it being through everyone, and Han Solo's just like, that's mm-hmm. a bunch of bullshit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> where he's just like yeah, the yeah. counter to all this. Um, you need that. You need, you need characters questioning the reality. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Uh, I thought for Trinity, <laughs> when I was watching this, <laughs> I thought at the end, I was like, so her character is like, she's destined to fall in love with Neo. Right, mm-hmm. that's what the oracle told. The oracle told her that she would fall in love with Neo. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. But I was like, what if Neo was just like, can we just be friends or whatever? <laughs> what yeah, if he just, just like, like completely, eh. just completely, just like turned her down. I guess the oracle would still be right. She would still love him, but uh, that's may not have been point. reciprocated. But uh, I guess we know mm. from the from the sequels that it was reciprocated. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always thought that was <laughs> it's funny. It's like, well, I mean. Not that happy of an ending. <laughs> um, uh, any final thoughts on The Matrix, 1999? Uh, you know, I was another thing I thought about was like, I wonder how Cypher became an informant, you know? Because he just is an informant from the very beginning. It's like, I always assumed he was just like, they captured him or something, and he was like talking his way out of it. He's like, I'll get you fucking everybody. I'll get you Trinity and Morpheus or whatever. Um, See, I think he went and sought them on, on his own. Hmm. Like, you know, after five years, he's like sick of this shit. So he like intentionally did something to attract the um, the attention of a smith and then like started talking to him. Yeah, that could be. This is another one of those questions of, you know, post movie. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. We just have to. It's, we, this is, again, what we were saying from the beginning. We have to fill in these uh, bits uh, with our mm-hmm. imagination. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. which is which is always that's always good for uh, worlds like this because you know th- this movie is um, I'd say it's um it's it's actually kind of small really in scale I would oh, yeah. say it, it's not too gr- it's it is it's got some really grand moments like uh, namely when Neo first wakes up from the Matrix and he sees those massive uh, like power uh, cylinders that he's with like mm-hmm. po- people pods and that's just like and they're playing this like super epic music and. And he's just like, yeah. fuck, like that's a huge epic little scene there. But, but really it's, it's just confined to like these few characters and yep. Neo trying to like, just learn about what's happening with him and in this world. And, and the same guys kind of basically kind of like chasing them around. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty kind of a little intimate sort of tale, I would say. I agree. Um, and then it got maybe a little grander in scale perhaps with the sequels uh, a little bit but uh, a little <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh yeah matrix the matrix and uh if you've never seen this before um you know what the hell have you been doing all your life <laughs> it's it's very much worth watching i'm sure um, 22 years later yeah holds up they're making a fourth one so 
They are. I'm very, can't be can't be behind. I'm curious as to what the hell this story's gonna be about. Like, I'm, yeah, no idea. <laughs> it seemed pretty like final with that last mm -hmm. movie. Um, but because uh, just knowing that Keanu Reeves is gonna like be in it, it's like what? I don't yeah, know, yeah. Like, what, what? like, hmm. Did they um, forget? He kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. Um. Yeah. The Matrix. 1999. Uh. Watch it with your mother. <laughs> <laughs>and the world. Yeah. Um, so I bought Battle for Los Angeles at Barnes and Noble when I was like, ooh. I don't know, like 13-ish. Um, that's crazy. The the more you, uh, the, the more like I look back on like what kind of like 
music was available in like a suburb of Memphis, like a very rural suburb. It's like kind of everything was offered, but you just didn't really like talk about it until you just found it. Like I also bought Tenacious D's first album from a Barnes and Noble in Carryville, Tennessee. So it's like, I don't know. It, It just always tickles me that like, the the lyrical content and like the things they were raging about i mean yeah that that it reaches everywhere you know in the country and around the world but like the specific like issues they were describing like reached rural tennessee oh yeah and again similar to what i was just saying about uh, the matrix where you know i was 12 or 13 years old when i first started listening to the music i didn't exactly mm-hmm. know what they were talking about <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, yeah. On all these uh, songs. But, uh, again, as I got older, I started to understand more of what they were they were saying. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, Rage Against the Machine is a four-person outfit. Tom, The legendary guitar player Tom Morello, uh, vocalist Zach mm-hmm. De La Roca or Rocha. I've always said Roca, but some people pronounce it Rocha. I'm not sure which is the correct one. I always said um, Rocha, but I'm c- probably the last person to be like, this is how it's said. <laughs> Hey, that might be it. Uh, Brad Wilk on drums and Tim Comerford on bass. And, uh, yeah, they formed in, like, uh, uh, like uh, when did they form? Like, 89 or something like that, or 90? Mm-hmm. The debut album came out in 92. But the album that we're discussing uh, this week uh, is their second album, Evil really Empire. It took them four years to, to come out with the Evil Empire after their first album? Mm-hmm. Well, they went on tour for a couple of years there, and uh, then they yeah, eventually got to working on this one. And there was like there's mm-hmm. rumors that they were gonna like that they were like breaking up and and all that. Um, but obviously that wasn't true. But um, you know, yeah, it took them a while. They they like I said, they were they 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 blew up more massively than they could have imagined. I guess speci- especially given what they were singing about that, that it became yeah, so yeah. commercial was um, maybe counter to you know what they stood for, but. Um, which actually maybe ultimately led to why they uh, broke up in the end. But um, Evil Empire, I think this is Rage Against the Machine's best album. So why do you think it's Rage Against the Machine's best album? <laughs> now, I was able to convince our friend Sean that this was the case, which is, let me tell you people, that's saying something. Um, Lay it out for me. So um, Rage Against the Machine really only has three albums. Um, they They made their their third album Battle of Los Angeles and then they they basically broke up right after that but then they after they had broken up they made a covers album um in 2000 that came out in 2000 but uh their debut album which is probably maybe the most well-known at least has the most well-known Rage Against the Machine song on it Killing in Mm -hmm. the Name Killing in the Name is probably the one Rage Against the Machine song that most people have heard um that's on their first album and like Alex said uh Wake Up, which is also on that first album, is played at the very end of The Matrix, which then you know just added to their you know the hugeness of the band because um, one of the biggest movies you know ever, um, and the only like commercial. Well, I guess it was like the fourth uh, song that was featured on the album soundtrack. Uh, but their first album is not their best because I think they were still trying to find. Though they have a unique sound on the album, it's not um, quite. It, a lot of the songs kind of like mesh together sonically. I would I would argue. Um, mm-hmm. uh, though they all are fucking great, <laughs> they sound really cool. 
Mm-hmm. I think Evil Empire has more variety in uh, the, the the types of song and from song to song. Um, really? Than I, their, I think their debut album. I, I think Evil Empire is a bit more homogenous than you're letting on. Well, it's less homogenous than their debut, their self-titled album, I would say. Um, and they because they because because they dive into I was going to get into this later, but like they dive into just like but one of the most interesting songs on this album is a song called um, "Wind Below," where they really get into this like psychedelic rock groove, which goes like mm-hmm. it's like it's like this like acid dripped guitar just like melting all over your body and that sort of thing, which I thought was like See, oh, pretty cool. Yes, but the the drums and the bass are still. They're they're good and it fits the 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 tone and the music, but despite what Morella is doing differently on each song, they're still holding down the groove, and it it sounds samey to me across a couple different songs. So another so a conversation. It's a, it's a good samey, but samey nonetheless. Well, so a conversation that I had with Sean about this was that he thinks that. Uh, Tim Comerford, the bassist, is a bit underrated as far as this band goes. The distinct thing is about Rage Against the Machine that most people, I guess, would know about is like Tom Morello. He uses on every single uh, album, it'll say on the back, it's like all sounds were made from guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. Basically, um, yeah. it has that like message written on like the CD and all that. Tom Morello uses these very distinctive. Uh, uh, sounds he, ma- he makes these distinctive sounds with his with his guitar using like feedback and pedals and all scratching the, the strings and all sort of stuff. That's like a mm-hmm. thing that's well known about the band. And then of course Zach De La Roca's you know lyrics of just like fuck you I won't do what you tell me like all these iconic yeah. lines that he's written. But something that Sean pointed out to me about basically every Rage Against the Machine song is, is that Tom Morello's guitar does not hold up as well as people think it does without mm-hmm. Tim Comerford on the bass. He's oh, yeah. really he's really like writing like right there with him for everything yeah. and putting like a lot more emphasis on things that Tom Morello's doing. Yeah. Um and so and I think there's a lot of like even something that I hadn't really thought about until recently the, the probably the biggest track on Evil Empire is a song called Bulls on Parade, which there's mm-hmm. even like a subtle little like bass solo in that song. Mm-hmm. After the bridge um, that's just like sort of like worked through there before Tom Morello leads right into his own solo. Uh, and so mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of like ebbing and flowing with each other, but then also like syncing back up, like, oh, like really perfectly. That's what gives, I think, Rage that real groove there. Yeah. Um, oh, no, absolutely. And um, I mean, I honestly think that uh, even with Brad Wilk, there's, there's an improvement in all of their like quality of like lyrics, guitar playing, bass playing, and drumming from their self-titled album to this one. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like, I mean, Brad Wilk is like drumming his ass off on this fucking album, like on like oh, yeah. Snake Charmer and Tire Me, which they won a Grammy for that one, their first Grammy for Tire Me, hmm. uh, for like best uh, hard rock performance or something like that. Um, and yeah, I just I just think it's just a, it's a more fully realized rage from their first album. Not that they're, not to say that, you know, that first album is bad or to say that this album isn't uh, homogenous, which it is, but I just, I just think it's, it's, a, it's more, it's an improvement. And then mm-hmm. of course there's their third album, Battle of Los Angeles, which to me has always, or as I, the more I listen to their music, it sounds more commercial than 
their first two albums, which seemed more underground. Um, and it was their most commercially successful album in the end, which again, so I think is probably what, why they ended up breaking up in the end. But um, what do you think is commercial about uh, Battle for LA? So I think a lot of the songs are more like they like lean more poppy as far as like the structure goes. And I think really? the quality of the um, I think quality of just like the mixing and mastering is like cleaner, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which it, it just is, I think, um, which probably just comes from, you know, having more money and time to, to fococus on that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. But um, it seems more polished. They had they had like more music. They had like music videos for that album, which they didn't really have that much really before. Mm-hmm. Um, and like those songs were like featured in um, like video games and stuff. And so it just seems like it got to a point at that point that um, their music was kind of straying away. Not, not that they were, they had stopped talking about things that were important to them um, mm-hmm. or that were just important in general, um, you know, lyrically from song to song. But I felt like um, it's kind of like the underground nature from where they came from was just like mm-hmm. slowly kind of like trickling away a bit. Um, and I also would argue that not every track on um, uh, Battle of Los Angeles is as strong as all the tracks on evil empire um well i think there's there's a, a few more tracks on battle for la than there is on um evil empire doesn't battle for la have like 13 or 14 songs uh, I don't know. i'm looking it up right now to fill this dead space uh, i'll be like what if ronald schwarzenegger was in rage against the machine fuck you i don't do what you tell me come on <laughs> i'll do it Give me your give me um, your impression, <laughs> Alec. Go. Oh God, <laughs> I can't. I love too much. Uh, so there's Got only it. one more song. That's interesting. I thought there were like more songs. So listening, I've never really listened to Evil Empire. So because I told you, like I I really dug into Battle for L.A. Mm-hmm. and I see what you mean now. A bit more pop sensibilities. Yeah. But I think that it's not as well it, evil empire feels more jam banny but but not as good like they don't jam as much uh let me clarify that a bit so they we mentioned funk a lot and like you said like everyone's kind of working in tandem like going back and forth and like handing things off to to each other mm-hmm. um as far as like solo type things go um they do that mostly it feels like for the 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 verses and like the bridges but those choruses all sound like like they know they're going to converge at the chorus to just like heavy rock like mm-hmm. none of the choruses to me felt like they continued that through line of like the 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 funk or of the like the the going back and forth like it all all the choruses had that same feeling yeah um, that's a, which that's isn't, again, that's not a bad thing. That's a but, I think a staple of uh, rage songs. <laughs> right, right. It's like that's uh, what they're known for. It's yeah. like you know you let you let De La Rocha you know do, like tell you spit his truth on the verses, and then the choruses are like sing along choruses. Like I think you know Battle for L.A. They have a bit more like Sleep Now in the Fire. It's definitely mm-hmm. like 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 I, I can see where they're. Um, that's a song that Sean does not like, by the way. <laughs> really? 
That's um, probably their most poppy song, I think, uh, that they have, I guess. But at the same time, like, literally, fuck you, you, you won't do, I won't do what you tell me. That's a sing-along chorus, and that was on their first album. So they've always well, kind of had these... Kind of. <laughs> there's no, you know there's, what I mean. There's no, I do know what you mean, There's, but there's no, like, with the Sleep Now on the Fire, it goes along with, like, a, sort of like a melody... It's like down 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 down. But then with and yeah. killing in the name, it's just that jam, basically like the whole, the jam you were talking about where it gets to the chorus. It's basically that like the whole kind of um, song mm-hmm. where they're just going down 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 down. That's a lot different energy than like down 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 down. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a little more. Uh, people basically when they listen when killing the name comes on, that's like their number one like mosh song basically. Yeah. Uh, I guess I've uh, moshed to that song. It's great, and I don't get the mosh energy from "Sleep Now in the Fire." <laughs> I guess. Really? It's, oh, I would mosh to that song. I mean, you can. I'm just, I'm just saying, uh, one is seems more moshable than the other. <laughs> What's on a scale of one zero to mosh? Uh, what do you <laughs> think? Now, now we're just getting into taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. feel like. But yeah. you're 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 not mosh prone anyway. Not as much as you are. That's yeah. uh, that's that's true. I've I've moshed before though. <laughs> Um, um and I, and I, of course anyone being like wow they're really digging in so what are the bad rage albums there's no <laughs> bad rage album yeah they're all they're all very good we're, we're all just we're just splitting hairs here if about I'm, our personal preferences if i'm ranking them it's evil empire their self-titled one and then battle of los angeles that's that's my rank but i think i actually listened to these like backwards i listened to battle of los angeles first and I loved mm-hmm. it. That like made me a fan of the band. Was listening like mm-hmm. I heard "Testify," which is the first track on that album, and then I was like, "This is like you awesome. said, it's uh, it's it's their most commercial, so it's probably like a good entry point." Yeah, quote unquote. Yeah, I'd argue that probably yeah. you know if you've ever played so most like I said most people probably heard "Killing in the Name," uh, just somewhere you you've played like "Guitar Hero 2 or something. It's, it's on, on there. Guitar Hero Two, or and then uh, and Rock Band they had a song too. I think it was "Bulls on Parade," "Sleep Down the Fire," or "Testify." I don't know, but I know Bulls on Parade's on three, Guitar Hero 3. Yeah. They also had Morello as a boss battle. Yeah, they did. I forgot about that. It's like Slash and Tom Morello. (laughs) I forgot about that. Who was the third? There there was another. I thought there was just the two. No, there was like the devil or some shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then they had uh, Gorilla Radio on Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, and they just made a remake of that game, and it's on there as well. And so, you know, or, or again, or you saw The Matrix and you, you know, heard it on in there. And then The Matrix Reloaded, they play Calm Like a Bomb, which is on Valve mm-hmm. uh, uh, LA um, at the very end of the credits as well. And then I think Sleep Now in the mm-hmm. Fire was also, it was in like, wasn't it in like one of the Charlie's Angels movies or something? Some movie like that. Uh, you're overestimating my knowledge <laughs> of Charlie's Angels movies. Um, but uh, yeah, no, man. Okay, so I remember when I heard... Um, Bills on Parade the first time. It was, mm-hmm. I had like downloaded it from like LimeWire and was yeah. like in my bedroom and was like, this is the best fucking song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I had that as my like wake up alarm song for like a whole year. <laughs> really? I did. My parents were very annoyed by that. you didn't hate the song after that? Nope. Nope. Yeah, I used to have the Space Jam theme song as my alarm. And then I realized <laughs> it was making me hate the Space Jam theme song because I didn't like waking up. Well, I, I did stop. It after a while, you know, obviously, you know, whenever you listen to like a song like so many times, it can like break it for you. And you yeah, like, that's why I'm shocked you did it for a whole year. <laughs> well, yeah, I did it for a year, and this was like 
15 years ago or something. I can't, it was like a yeah. long time ago. So now, yeah. you know, it's, I'm very far removed from that time, I guess. But um, yeah, that's the second track on this album. And oh my God, that's a like very iconic song. Even maybe if you go even more specifically into that song, probably it, it's, it's comes down to, um, um, if not the lyrics, but Tom Morello's uh, scratching. He makes a sound effect that makes it like, sound like he's like scratching a record, like he's a DJ. Mm-hmm. And that's the solo. That's like the guitar solo of the song, um, yeah. which was like no one fucking did that before. And so, uh, you know, it, it was in it, it. He calls the riff. Tom Morello calls the riff for the verses in that song. Uh, he, he named the, the he named the riff. Uh, the ghetto boy is what he calls it. It's like, no, 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 no. Like that whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the idea. What they were going for on top of, you know, funk and rock was like they were also trying to, you know, recreate or yeah, recreate some maybe like uh, sounds you would hear within like a hip hop song, I guess. But then mm-hmm. doing it with that, you know, live instrumentation. And that's kind of the reason why they did the band the way they did it. Like like I said, they were influenced by Public Enemy and Run DMC. But they were like, what if we like tried to do that, but live instrumentation? Um, yeah. Instead of like, you know, recording it and then you go to the show and then it's like the track uh, instrumental and then him just like rapping over it. Um, I thought that would be more interesting. And that's, you know, I guess it it really was. Uh, I would argue. So here's my here's my question for you. Is uh, can Rage Against the Machine be Rage Against the Machine in any other genre? Uh well that's what jo- well we don't put people in genre boxes here at ha 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 fantastic so um, to 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 clarify to clarify do you think the rage or the anger of rage against the machine would translate to any other genre of music you mean like uh polka <laughs> yes like polka i mean what i mean no i don't think so so, you know, for me, I come from more of like a alternative and uh, punk and uh, ska like background. So like I yeah. like things that are upbeat and things that like are loud and fast. Um, mm-hmm. I think specifically like the hard rock approach that they took to make like the main bass sound of of their sound. It adds to the anger, like having a loud as fuck drum beat and loud guitars and like rumbling bass, like intensify the lyrical content and the way that De La Rocha is saying his, like, like speaking it, like, 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 yeah. like con- conveying it. So I-, I feel like you don't get that same sense of anger to me with my background that I would in hip hop or rap music, even if they're talking about the same subject matter I think it's much more raw and real the way Rage does it with like a rock influence. Well, what's uh, your opinion on something like that? So uh, one of the things I was speaking about right before that was saying how they use live instrumentation. Essentially, what they're doing is the same thing. If you go back and mm-hmm. you listen to like a Public Enemy album or Run DMC, who were like huge acts in the '80s, um, early '90s, uh, is that you know in the studio. They, you know, they use the same instrumentation that Rage was using. Um, it's just the performance is what's different. Um, mm-hmm. And so when it comes to like recording an album, that's 
one thing versus like performing the song live is like a whole another thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that can absolutely come off. Case in point, um, Kendrick Lamar, who has kind of gotten through through, through you know his last uh, three albums that came out, uh, or maybe even just the last two that came out, or no, the last three that um, you know. I remember Dave Chappelle kind of described Kendrick Lamar as um, he says he like he listens to his song sometimes and he says it's like pure just like rage just mm-hmm. on the mic and it was just like a stream of consciousness of rage for some of his songs and uh, you know when Kendrick Lamar performs his music live depending upon uh, what album we're talking about he did use live instrumentation um, he did that for all of to pimp a butterfly. Which was more of like a jazz influenced. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the instrumentation is, is all kind of pulled from jazz, really, uh, mm-hmm. more so than uh, rock. Which apparently his next album is going to be more rock influenced. But I digress. Uh, he's got a song on that album called "The Black or the Berry," which is like a very. Um, I think uh, you can still get that rage, that emotion, that conviction across through mm-hmm. vocals alone. You don't even need instrumentation. And I think Kendrick Lamar has shined in that. Not that he's done like an acapella album, but um, he something that is, just, is unique for Kendrick Lamar's music, maybe not unique, but something that he does in his music is uh, he he uses lots of different like voices. And it's, it's as if he has like different characters in him. Like when he's trying to be more angry, his voice gets a little more like growly and, He's like yelling into the mic and that sort of thing. You you feel hype from it. You feel like how hard it is. It doesn't. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like it doesn't come across. Um, I'd say, and people are you know uh, very similarly like jumping up and down and like moshing in his crowd as they would do at like a Rage Against Machine crowd, um, mm-hmm. depending upon you know where they are. Um, and so I you know I think they they absolutely do uh, can can have the same same impact. But you know I guess you were more specifically talking about like live performances less than um maybe uh, albums well, no. al- studio album recordings well it feels like at least on evil empire like i feel like it was recorded live I'm, i mean i'm pretty sure it's not but it has that feeling of four dudes in a room they did they they like, always recorded playing. like at the same yeah. time all four of them in a room so it's less the live aspect in that i can't describe it really it, it's just i think it's just the music it, that I latched onto uh, when I first like started getting into music is like, that's how I feel emotion the strongest. So it sounds like to me, my answer is no. I feel like rage has to be a hard rock band to, to have that same intensity, but it sounds like you're saying, um, yes, they could be a different genre of music and still have that same level of intensity. Well, sort of. I mean, there's like a billion... You have to be maybe more specific because there's like a billion different genres. Um, <clears throat> and they're incorporating like t- t- at least 10 genres just in their music, you know, alone. Like everything they were like sort of categorized as, like there was like metal to hard rock to classic rock to funk to hip hop to like like yeah. all this stuff so all at once. Do you agree that they're the like the bedrock is like hard rock of their sound? I think yes, only because of the specific instrumentation that they're using, which it's the same exact instrumentation for every album and every song. Sure. Um, so if they leaned more into like funk, do you think it would have 
it could have the same effect. I know we're talking about hypotheticals here. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, obviously, I think um, there are certain genres that are specifically, I guess, linked to maybe like rebellion and youth um, mm-hmm. that are, and those same genres incorporate, you know, basically the, that same instrumentation. And mm-hmm. so, if like, for example, Tom Morello swapped out his guitar, his electric, his electric guitar specifically, for like, uh, like a keyboard instead. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think, because like you said, if someone's accustomed to hearing a guitar for like a rock song, it's like, well, if it's a rock song, it's got to have a guitar, right? Specifically an electric guitar. I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. But I think that is how people associate what people associate with like rock music, especially hard rock music, especially mm-hmm. in like the you know eighties and early nineties. Um, yeah. But um, you know we live in a world now where you can recreate you know basically any song, any sound with a laptop. So right. it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a guitar. That's why I was trying to make a distinction between like studio albums versus live performances. Um, and, but I, I guess one of the things you said that did come across was it sounds like four guys in a room because it was. That's how they recorded yeah. their. That's how they recorded their music. Whereas like a lot of hip hop is kind of recorded like all over the world. That's kind of something that's happened over this last year actually too, um, mm-hmm. with like COVID and stuff. Like everyone recording stuff in different you know places and then piecing it together. Maybe that's what I'm feeling more than the the rock itself is the the live aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. The cool thing about so I have not seen Raging Machine live before in person, but I've watched a billion of their um, videos on YouTube. Which I my earliest memories of mm-hmm. using YouTube was to look up videos of Raging Machine the Machine playing really? live. Uh, I don't remember That's anything great. I looked up before that. Um, and you know, basically when Tom Morello gets to his you know solo bits or just really all the stuff he's playing, it always sounds a little bit different than what it was on the studio album. Right. Um, he plays it like somewhat similarly, but it always kind of ends up sounding just a little different. Um, which is, I guess, you know, the cool, unique thing about you know going to see bands live. But mm-hmm. okay, now shifting gears here, something we haven't talked about yet in regards to this, we've been talking about like you know instrumentation and all that sort of stuff, genres, mm-hmm. but we haven't not talked about lyrical content with Rage mm-hmm. Against the Machine, the very prolific uh, Zach De La Rocha. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, I didn't know this until I did some research today, um, or yesterday, why this album was called Evil Empire. I always assumed, of course, they were referring to America and, and yeah. uh, or Western civilization, um, and, you know, it's kind of self-explanatory, but uh, there's a little more of a specific origin and um, that yeah. Zach De La Roca spoke t- about um, in an interview he did in 1997, where he said... Um, that the 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 title Evil Empire actually comes from a speech that Ronald Reagan gave in 1981 or 1983 mm. uh, at this like uh, Christian uh, organization meeting where he was mm-hmm. referring to the Soviet Union as an evil empire, and he was imploring mm. um, everyone in America to not view the United States and the Soviet Union as equals. And that America essentially had the moral high ground compared to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Zach De La Rocha and Tom Morello, Brad Wilk, and Tim Comerford were like, well, if that isn't the most hypocritical fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Um, 
because essentially Ronald Reagan's perspective there is saying that like, cause at this Christian meeting, like God is on their side basically, and they're the mm-hmm. righteous ones. And so no matter what they've done before, we're better than they are. This, these other people, um, mm-hmm. without like being completely tone deaf and not, uh, you know, realizing how off all the awful things the United States has done and was doing at the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think lyrically, this album is just, is it's so much about, uh, Zach highlighting all of the people that are just suffering in the United States. Um, just from the very beginning, like people of the sun, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, talking about, um, uh, um, Hispanic workers and having to, you know, um, farm for tobacco and the, um, overseers is like cracking this whip. Um, but like giving this smile that we're the Marlboro men or whatever, um, mm-hmm. buy our cigarettes today. And these people are like being killed just so people can, you know, smoke a cigarette or whatever. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's kind of the root of what really that, that I think that's what makes this album more distinct from the previous album, where he he's there's like a target to what he's saying lyrically, where he mm-hmm. he's he's specifically like trying to highlight all of the injustices and marginalized people uh, mm-hmm. in uh, America, with like like down Rodeo, uh, where he's talking mm-hmm. that's the reference to Rodeo Drive, which is in L.A. and which is this uh, sort of famous street where there's a bunch of like high fashion expensive stores and stuff like Gucci and all that. Um, right. and he's got this like lines catch line where he's just like, I'm growing, uh, uh, rolling down Rodeo with a shotgun. These people ain't seen a brown skin man since their grandparents bought one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, or speaking about, uh, this, uh, in the song, um, like uh, without a face, which is one of my favorite songs lyrically where he, he, he's essentially just talking about how, um, being uh, a person growing up in uh being someone in South America that then moves to the United States being treated, you know, lesser than because you're from somewhere else and ultimately right. what you're seeking is to uh you know help feed your family basically. He's got the line says I've got no card so I've got no soul, life in prison, no parole, no control. Mm-hmm. Um and uh you know, so I you know, I think it, it was a, a quite tone deaf of a thing for Ronald Reagan to say. I'm sure that's no fucking surprise to anybody <laughs> uh, that the you know this guy that was born in like 1930 something uh, <laughs> was mm-hmm. not the most woke individual. But it speaks to you know Ronald Reagan was just president um, what like six years before this album came out, um, mm-hmm. and so his uh, or oh, it was eight years maybe before this album came out, and so it was very. Um, and, you know, Ronald Reagan, of course, ended up becoming like this like great figure for the Republican Party. Like, he's like he's the greatest Republican since Abraham Lincoln or whatever, um, mm-hmm. and became like more of an like an idol sort of figure for conservatives. Um, and they were sort of just eating up his words as if it's just like fact and what what, what we sh- we're we're gods on our side. You know, what what mm-hmm. do we have to what do we have to worry about? Uh, we're we're clearly in the right here and. You shouldn't, I guess, re-examine or reevaluate the past, and instead we should just like whitewash it, which he speaks about like three songs at least, whitewashing mm-hmm. history and not thinking about you know what's uh, happening to people on the margins of society. Um, and so yeah, you know, evil empire, though it came from the coining of Reagan talking about the Soviet Union, he's like, well, you know, it's the pot calling the kettle black, really. Mm-hmm. So something very, uh, I guess, appropriate to rage against. (laughs) (laughs) 
What did you take up to that name? What did you take away from this uh, album? Uh, I guess lyrically, Alec. Uh, I guess maybe just in general, different from the other albums, or just compared to any other political stuff you've heard. Or... So it's very specific, and um, that allows me to kind of take away my own things. So I've always felt like uh, things that are very vague. I don't really get that much out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I like things that are hyper-specific to whoever's singing them because they paint a clearer picture of like how they're feeling about those things, and then I'm able to extrapolate that and like put that into my, my own views. and my, I can bring my own experiences to it because I can more clearly see how they're feeling. So um, I think that leads... You know, now that you mention it and I've had 20 minutes to stew on it, Battle for L.A. <laughs> is a bit more vague, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in some of the things it's trying to say. At least it's more popular songs than I can recall right now. Yeah. But, like, every song on this album is, like, almost every song on this album is very... Like, I love Revolver, but it's, yeah. like, it, that's kind of, like, a more general song. But, like, I was on Genius Lyrics and, like so many of these were specifically referring to a, like a people in Mexico and like their specific situation and their, their woes and everything. Yeah. So what did I take away from it? Is that he's angry (laughs) is that the band is very furious at, at, at several entities. Yeah. And it's all for people that, uh, they characterize as, not deserving the treatment that they are deserving because oppressor is going to oppress man. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I think the, um, I guess it's easy to say that on surface level. So for example, one of my, f- uh, f- uh, good friends, um, Chris, he, uh, he didn't know that, um, I guess half of the people in Rage Against the Machine were minorities. Uh, he didn't know that Tom Morello was, uh, I guess half black and, black yeah. or, or Zach De La Rocha was uh Hispanic um he just thought all they were all like white dudes um mm-hmm. and um I think it's I guess it's easy to just say like oh well they're mad because they're black and Hispanic or whatever but uh, I think looking at like the further details as to like their stories um you know prior to you know starting this band you know mm-hmm. they, they've they've spoken about how, you know, like Tom Morello grew up in this really tiny town in Illinois where he was like the only, there's like the only like black family there. The only like black mm-hmm. family like at his school and people like calling him like a nigger all the time and all this sort of stuff. He just grew up just being the outsider and feeling like an outsider yeah. and being made to feel like he wasn't an American as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Same story for Zach. He had a similar thing where, you know, he's making all these like Mexican jokes and all this making him feel like they don't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, in this place that's always been their home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that rage is actually, it's really deep rooted, um, mm-hmm. from like childhood, uh, for experiences that they, they have. And then, you know, maybe even more so with Tom Morello, you know, he went, he, he worked for like, um, some like congressman, uh, out of college, uh, and, uh, he, he basically had ended up having this like huge distaste for like any politicians uh, mm-hmm. in in the U.S. anyways, um, from like, all the things he was asked to do. One of the things of which he, one of his jobs was just to 
just call rich people. He worked for like some Democratic congressman, mm-hmm. and he's his job was just to, like just call rich people just to get money basically, and just mm-hmm. doing anything you could could just to get money and and they also it's important to know they grew up in a time where I thought this is really interesting. Um, they grew up in a time where you know there was a clear opposition obviously to what they believed in maybe like the Republican party. One could draw mm-hmm. that uh, contrast between, you know, the, their lives and what Republicans stood for. But mm-hmm. they also um, grew up and were adults in a time when one can make the argument, it's still a case, but where Democrats also did not actually uh, reflect or cater to what they thought was important. Mm. So they're really against like neoliberalism, uh, which was huge in you know the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and mm-hmm. one, again one could argue it still is today. Um, but you know in the eighties, you know they had late seventies and eighties they had the war on drugs, and not it wasn't just like Republicans that were pro war on drugs; it was also Democrats and yeah, these it was com- everybody. These communities that were. Um, it's completely just destroyed because of like, or, or so there are politicians that would, could only get elected if you were like tough on quote unquote tough on crime. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people in these communities that are affected by this are like seeing the, seeing, seeing the daily oppression from this of just like SWAT teams uh, or what was called back then in the 80s, called these crash teams that would just roll through neighborhoods in like fucking tanks and just break mm-hmm. into people's houses and just beat the shit out of people. And, you know, mm-hmm. and it, like, and like, and there'd be no consequences. You know, we we live in a time right now where we just saw an officer actually get convicted and sentenced. And that was just unheard of back then. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pre, you know, video cameras. And even one of the things that led Rage Against the Machine to, you know, uh, be so uh, convicted in their debut album was what happened to Rodney King in 1992 when right. they released their debut album. And so um, they don't have a trust in any politicians, even though their mm-hmm. their politics are maybe more left-leaning. They fucking don't trust any Democrats or Republicans or anyone. Uh, and they s- kind of lean anarchists, which, which, um, which Tom Morello has yeah. spoken about before. They don't really offer any solutions in their music to the problems they see need addressing. They just are like, "Hey, this sucks. Get angry." Yeah, it's like burn it all down. That's that's really their. Um, that's kind of their thing. And there's this uh, story, infamous story of uh, when they filmed the music video for "Sleep Now in the Fire" outside of um, Wall or on Wall Street outside the stock exchange, and uh, music video was directed by Michael Moore, that political director. Yeah. And, or just, I should just say director, <laughs> uh, <laughs> instead of saying political director, director, Michael Moore. And, um, uh, they ended up, he, Michael Moore got arrested and then Zach and the rest of the band and a bunch of people just ended up like storming into, um, um, the stock exchange, New York stock exchange building. And the, they like shut down and for, for the rest of the day and all sort of stuff. And without really any wow. sort of like, that was the outcome of it, you know? Uh, which that you know really happens that it gets shut down like that, but you know it's not like it stopped you know the subprime mortgage crisis that happened in two thousand seven. You know right. I mean? Yeah. And so it's not necessarily like solutions, but it's just like expressing that frustration and maybe even informing people of problems that exist, but not exactly mm-hmm. offering solutions. Um, 
but uh, th- so that's you know that's um, I mean th- their name it, it's in their title they're they're not yeah, they're yeah, not showing yeah. any sort of like uh, they're not selling any like false uh, you know perception of who they are it's it's literally we're raging against the machine. It's rage, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and with rage, there's not a lot of nuance. It's which not it isn't a bad thing. It's like just calling out shitty behavior. Yeah. So it's it's protest music, um, and even you know the, the <clears throat> I guess we hadn't spoken about this, but you know the cover of um, Evil Empire is a it's a painting of a of a boy, a white boy with blue eyes, that has mm-hmm. this sort of like cunning sort of smirk on his face, mm-hmm. um, and he's wearing a, a cape and a red shirt with a, a blue E on it, and there's a little ribbon in front of him that says Evil Empire, where essentially he's supposed to be sort of this like. Uh, soldier or Hitler Youth esque um, sort of figure um, mm-hmm. to this evil empire, and um, it's like a, it's it, it's it's sort of like a it's it's the cover seems like it's maybe like a banner or some sort of like propaganda for this mm-hmm. establishment basically, um, and, and they made that essentially the, the the cover of their album, whereas the previous album was was famously the uh, an image of this monk who had lit himself on fire in protest for the Vietnam War. Um, and so they're, they're not shy from uh, sort of like, I guess, rubbing dirt in the eye of anyone yeah, anywhere yeah, at any yeah. time. They've, they, they've given, they've done show, they did a show outside of the RNC in like 2000, uh, I think 10 was it or something like that or 2012. Um, oh, really? Uh, and you know, like free shows for that. And, uh, I believe I can't remember. There was some. Oh yeah, the they had a they were on SNL once, and they um, performed two songs. But one of the songs was like cut from the episode because they put a flag, American flag, upside down on mm-hmm. the bass drum uh, where Brad Wilk was playing in protest of the guest who was on that week who was some like a politician that they disagreed with. I can't remember who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this other story where like Tim Comer, for what I believe it was, he like got arrested at some award show for like climbing this like scaffolding or something in protest for like what was going on. So they, they've, they've been yeah. arrested numerous times and tear gas and spray. So they, they actually, they walk mm-hmm. the walk. It's not all just in the songs, you know? Mm-hmm. And in the end, like we said, we've been saying, you know, they ended up breaking up. Um, which the exact reasoning for why they broke up is not really known. It's kind of only like vaguely sort of known. They they just mm-hmm. couldn't agree on what their political ideals were. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that because the, they broke up, but I guess it's important to point out that uh, three of the band members stayed together. Uh, Tom Morello, guitar, Tim Comerford, bass, and Brad Wilk, drummer. And Zach mm-hmm. De La Roca was basically the one that left. And then mm-hmm. the remaining three f- formed a new band called Audio Slave with um, with Chris Cornell from uh, Soundgarden, right? And then they made like three albums together. Uh, so it was really Zach that was that one put out the statement about them breaking up, and two was the one that left the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of seems like the type of person that you know they they, they have. A, if you were watching interviews with him or Tom Morello, they they're very much so like kind of a take no prisoners, fuck compromise, yeah, type yeah. type of people, you know. And so, I, I suspect that it might have something to do with the fact that they were becoming so commercially successful. 
mm-hmm. and it kind of like counteracted what they what he believed in, you know. But, mm-hmm. but you know, since then they've 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 uh, started doing shows. Yeah, they yeah. came back together uh, like ten years ago. Uh, they they did a kind of like a little reunion tour thing, and then they're doing another one now, which was canceled because of COVID, but it's happening next year, which I'll be going to. Woo! So it's exciting. So yeah. Any final, yeah. <laughs> any final thoughts on rage? Yeah, rage. Yeah, dude. If you want to get hype, uh, fucking play some rage, dude. I always like. Yeah. If you if you want to get mad and sad, I wouldn't get sad. I never get I'm, sad I'm kinda, listening to. What? I'm kind of belittling them. <laughs> what is uh, with my tone? I've never gotten but, sad no. listening to rage. Really? <laughs> no. Dude, I've gotten sad. Like some of the shit they talk about. It's like. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, but it's it's kind of like a. It's kind of like a cathartic sort of thing. It's not that I yeah, like run right. around and, you know, just like, fuck everything. That's not my personality because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I always tell people because there was a period of time where I was like just into rage. And then my next favorite band, not too long after that, was Coldplay. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, what? I yeah, just, what are you talking about? <laughs> I just That's like a whole nother episode. I, I trust, I promise I'm not like Paul Ryan who said he loves Rage Against the Machine. And then they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, they stand against everything you stand for. And he's just like, I just like the yeah. music or whatever. That's not, like, <laughs> mm, no, you don't. That's not, uh, that's not me. But I, I, you know, there are things that they talk about that I definitely stand for, uh, m- most of which maybe not their, their lack of solutions to problems. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Uh, I'm no, a marginal. Rage is, I mean, rage has solidified itself in in our music history. Oh uh, yeah, of this country, um, I, I mean, I'd say worldwide, just because of like the the ideals they speak to are are universal. I think. So yeah, if you haven't listened to them, Evil Empire is not a bad place to start. <laughs> or if you want something. What we started on their third album is also out there on all the streaming platforms. Yeah, I'd rec- I'd actually recommend maybe starting out with Battle of Los Angeles. It's a, it's a good tunnel through, yeah. tunnel in, and then yeah. if you want to get to some, the best shit, then listen to Evil Empire. Yeah, if you <laughs> want to get to the real shit, start going backwards. All right, folks, thanks for listening to uh, the season two premiere of uh, Ha 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 Fantastic. Uh, we can- are we're aiming to do a twelve episodes this season, so eleven more. On yeah. the horizon for you. Yeah, we've, we're we're really excited about this season. We're we're doing some fucking bangers this season. Uh, email us at ha 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 fantastic podcast at gmail um, or look us up on Instagram at ha 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 fantastic, or on Twitter ha ha fantastic, um, or come stalk us. We need some stalkers. Yeah, we need some we need some uh, groupies, right? Is that what they call it? <laughs> Podcast groupies. <laughs> Is that yeah, a thing? Well, there's got There's probably a name for those. next week for Galaxy Quest and Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots by the Flaming Lips. Happy birthday, Chris. Happy birthday.